Well, good morning, church. It's really good to be back with you after two weeks of vacation. And instead of sharing with you for five minutes what we did on vacation after Jeff just finished reading our 30 verses, I think we should probably move right to our text. (laughs) So we will to make sure that we can make it through it today. So as we turn to the back to the book of Acts this morning, I, I know that Nick last week was with, with Samson, but as we turn back to the book of Judges this week, Judges, Acts, we are returning to the central theme of the book of Acts that, that we highlighted in the very beginning of our study. And, and that theme that we highlighted at the very beginning is this, is that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel because the risen and ascended King Jesus is actively enabling its advance through his spirit-empowered people. It's important. It doesn't just advance in a nebulous sort of way. It doesn't advance in merely a supernatural way because God uses the means of his people. All of these are important. But because God is behind it, nothing can stop it. Direct threats of the Sanhedrin, as we've already seen, have not stopped the advance of the gospel. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira have not stopped the advance of the gospel. And as we're going to see today, as we're going to see today, outright persecution cannot ultimately stop the advance of the gospel. So if you're taking notes today, Organized the sermon around just three simple headings. The Apostles' Impact, verses 12 through 16. The Apostles' Rest and Punishment, 17 through 39. And the Apostles' Response, verses 40 through 42. So let's go to verse 12 and look at the beginning of, of the impact. This whole section has to go together, which is why it's so long. Number one, we begin verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now now I realize as we look at the broader five verses that you've already heard read, they raise any number of questions, which is why I want to start right here with this first verse. And I also want to begin with a question of my own that let anchors us back into the context of the preceding chapters. We have, we have an interaction with the Sanhedrin today. The question is, is how did the church respond to the, the, the Sanhedrin's threats and their demands that they stop preaching about Jesus back in chapter 4? This isn't the first time they're going to get threats today. How did they respond before in chapter 4? We get to verse 29 of chapter 4. We saw this three weeks ago, and now, Lord, their prayer, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. We we highlighted this three weeks ago. They prayed for two key things, supernatural boldness, that they might continue proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the face of opposition and threats. And the second thing that they prayed for is that God would place his divine stamp of approval on their teaching through miraculous healings. Don't miss this. They're not just praying for God to do all sorts of miracles. They're praying for a supernatural boldness that is accompanied by undeniable evidence of God's favor and his active work in their midst. The preaching accompanied with the signs is proof that God is in it. 
And as we look at the text today, this is after that prayer. What do we see? We see that God is not only answering their prayer, where is God doing it? He's doing it at the very heart of Israelite worship. He's he's doing it in the temple itself. He's doing it at the very place that they were told not to preach. And in all of this, Luke wants his readers to see, I I think first and foremost, that Christianity did not grow in a dark secret corner of the Roman Empire. It didn't grow in in, in the basement, you know, kind of like, you know, especially if you've lived anywhere where your basements get like wet and moldy. You know, it's not like mold growing in the corner of the basement. No, Christianity didn't grow in a dark corner. No, it grew in the spiritual heart of Israel under the broad daylight. Nothing hidden, nothing secret. Every act, every miracle, and every gospel sermon open to public inquiry and inspection. Everything open. Nothing hidden. And in fact, it's this very public ministry of the apostles and the positive response of the people that fuels the conflict in our rather extended passage today. Let's let's just take a quick look at how the people responded. Verses 13 through 16. This is all responses of the people. Verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord's multitude pardon me, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's just kind of quickly highlight these these verses and walk through them. Verse 13, what do we see? Even though some of the Jews appear to be cautiously viewing the apostles' ministry from a distance. After all, Ananias and Sapphira just keeled over and got buried. And there's these incredible miracles going on. They're standing at a distance, but that distance isn't merely fear. They're looking upon them with great favor. They're still trying to figure out how to engage them in many cases. They're looking at them with incredible favor. They're listening to their messages with the utmost eagerness. Because why? They can see God is actively at work. They can see it. We get to verse 14 as a result of this. What do we see? More than ever. Not not just handfuls of believers are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but more than ever, believers are added to the Lord. Multitudes of women and men. Men and women are coming to faith in Jesus Christ in terms that the church has never seen. It's amazing. That they're not just simply gathering as a group of miracle seekers or lecture attenders. No, we have Jewish men and women coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and Luke could have stopped here because so many of these summary sections are focused on the growth of the church, but he doesn't stop here. And I think it's because he wants us to grasp the monumental impact of the apostles' ministry in Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. Notice, how do the Jewish people respond? We're still dealing with responses. Verse 15. 
They held Peter in such high regard that they're laying their sick out on the streets in hopes that his shadow passes over him. Now that raises the question. Does that mean that the Jews were superstitiously hoping Peter's shadow is going to heal them? Or that countless people were actually healed by Peter's shadow? It's quite a conversation among commentators. It's pretty split. And, and even though that I'm not really sure, like I'm not, it's like I'm not going to really place my finger hard on this, I think it's, I think it's actually the first I leave tentatively towards the fact that people are hoping his shadow is going to accomplish something. And that's because there's an explicit detail in verse 16 that verse 15 does not have. And that's that every single person that was brought to them is healed. I lean that way. I could be maybe convinced otherwise. But in verse 16, there's something important that's going on. Notice the good news of the apostles' ministry isn't restricted to Jerusalem. It's spreading like wildfire into the surrounding towns. It's spreading. The towns are bringing their sick. The towns are bringing their demon-possessed to the apostles. And in this, what do we see going on? We see that the gospel message is spreading from Jerusalem to Judea. Does that ring a bell? Does that ring a bell? Acts chapter 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all where? Judea and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. This, this, this passage here isn't only about healings. It's certainly about healings. But what does he want us to see? He wants us to see the impact is spreading out. It's like, it's like throwing a rock in the middle of the pond, and the, the ripples are moving out. The gospel is making headway into the surrounding towns. Yes, it is being proclaimed in the temple and in other places, but it is on the move. And, and, and God is answering their prayer all the way back in chapter four with the greatest answer for boldness. But it's this very success and this popularity that sparks the conflict in the following verses. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to read through all of this here for the sake of time, but let me begin in verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into the public prison. Now, did you notice the, the, the immediate contrast? In fact, you can see it in your English versions. But... We're supposed to see there's a contrast between the people and the leaders. The temple authorities are not filled with joy and awe and wonder at the obvious work of God in their midst. Nor are they filled with interest and curiosity. No, what are they filled with? They're filled with jealousy. They are gripped with with envy over the rapid expansion of the gospel and and the apostles' ministry. They're gripped with jealousy over their soaring popularity. And to add insult to injury, 
It's happening in the temple itself. I, I mean, I mean, just we we see this happen maybe once in a while in the sports world, right? Home team is there. They come running out onto the field, and the crowd goes, "Yay!" Then then some incredible player from another team comes out on the field, and they like cheer louder for the guy from the other team than their own team. You know, like like I mean, how do you think that makes your home team feel? But that's kind of what's going on here. Is 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 the chief priests and the Pharisees are the home team, and everybody's flocking to the apostles. Everybody's flocking to him. And this is important because it helps us see once again that Israel's religious leaders are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus demonstrated it in the Gospels. Luke is showing it to us here in the, in, in the, in the book of Acts. They're spiritually bankrupt. They've forsaken their true calling. The, the chief priests and the Sadducees, they're not jealous for God's glory, are they? They're, they're not jealous for God's word. That they're not waiting for his promises to be fulfilled, nor can they celebrate the obvious outpouring of his mercy and power in their midst, even though nothing like this has happened in the history of Israel. What, what Luke is describing here is it seems to be greater than, than his descriptions of Jesus' ministry. Jesus told his apostles, you will do greater things. Yet in all of this, they are not moved. They're not moved to praise and worship. They're moved to jealousy. And they arrest the 12 in hopes that they can contain their influence and they can intimidate them into silence. But here's where God steps in again. God vindicates his apostles, sending an angel to not only deliver them from prison, but to command them, to command them to immediately return to the temple and continue preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, now, when you heard the text read earlier, were you like, yes, look, God delivered the apostles. He delivered them and, and, and protected. It's like, no, God sent them back into the lion's den. I mean, he sent them back into the furnace. He, he didn't let them go off to some quiet corner. He sent them right back into the lion's den. Yet yet in all of this, God is doing two things. He's saying, number one, these are my messengers. And number two, this is the message that I want my people to hear. As he delivers his people from prison. And in this, what is he also doing? We cannot read this apart from Acts chapter 4. God is answering their prayer for supernatural boldness. You get delivered from prison and an angel tells you to preach, what are you going to do? You're going to go preach. He's answering their prayer. But on the flip side, you don't need boldness when life and ministry are easy. You need boldness when life and ministry are hard, when it's going to cost you everything to continue in faithfulness. And you certainly need boldness when faithful ministry puts you in direct conflict with those who have authority over you, especially when they're abusing their authority.
Let's pick it up in verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you. It's interesting, we stri- we, they questioned them. Then he makes a comment. We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet here you are, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those whom obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. So as we look at this text, the first thing that we clearly see is that the apostles have clearly disobeyed the high priest and the Sanhedrin, right? They've already been commanded not to preach their preaching. The second thing we see here is the disciples' disobedience. This is important for us to see. Their disobedience was not simply a matter of, of rebelling against men. They're not merely rebelling against the Sanhedrin. Their disobedience to the Sanhedrin is is a reflection of their wholesale obedience to God. They're not just doing what they want to do. They're not just saying, you can't tell me what to do. No, there's something even greater. They are actively obeying God. We saw this three weeks ago. A person's obedience to God always trumps their God-given call to submit to their religious or political authorities. Yet in this, it's important to point out, the apostles' actions in this instance are not not what we might call a simple matter of, of civil disobedience, as we might think of in our day and age. What I mean by this is that they're not responding to a social injustice that that is going on somewhere in the the culture and they're not doing it in a way to raise awareness and so people can see it and bring an end to the injustice. That's, That's often civil disobedience. And they're not just standing up for civil rights. As Brian Vickers points out in his commentary on these verses, true injustice abounds on the council's part. It is injustice. But, but it's not the cause of, nor does it lead to the apostles' decision to continue speaking and preaching in Jesus' name. Do the apostles hope for change? The answer is yes. They want to see change. But the change they seek is faith and repentance. The change they are not seeking is, is freedom of speech or any other thing. The thing that they want to see is people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And why? It's because they've commissioned, been commissioned by Jesus Christ to do this very thing and they've been commanded by an angel the night before to do it as well. See, this is first and foremost a matter of direct obedience to God. Third thing that we see 
Is it for all of its abuse of authority and its complicity in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? The apostles do not withhold the gospel from the Sanhedrin. They don't hide the gospel. I mean, we look at the Sanhedrin. Yes, they killed him. Yes, God reversed their death sentence by raising Jesus from the dead and exalting him to God's right hand. But what, for, but for what end did God do all these things? So that Israel might find repentance and forgiveness of sins in the rejected but resurrected Jesus Christ. So that Israel might find it. And even though all of these men are currently walking in blindness and disobedience and hatred of Jesus Christ, what are they doing? They're holding out the offer of life. They're holding it out. They're responding to the injustice and the threats of the Sanhedrin by faithfully proclaiming God's free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Yet in all of this, the chief priest and the Sanhedrin reveal, they reveal their spiritual blindness. They reveal their utter hatred of Jesus Christ. They've seen countless miracles in Jesus' name. They've heard countless sermons explaining how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises through his prophets. They've witnessed the love and compassion and care that defined the early church. They have every reason in the world to slow down, to lean in, to ask questions, and to open their Bibles to see what the Bible has to say. After all, isn't that their primary responsibility? But they don't. They don't care. Now they fly into a murderous rage because they've already rendered their verdict. And they, and they would have killed the apostles on the spot if it were not for a wise but unbelieving Pharisee who stepped in. Let's take a look, at, starting at verse 34. When a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while, and he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus arose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they'd called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Now, we still have a lot to cover in this section, so let me highlight three 
three things about Gamaliel in this section that are important for us. Number one is, is, is big picture. Gamaliel is a very important figure in Israel. Very important figure. Like the apostles, what does the text tell us? He is held in honor by all the people. This is an important man. And, and, and even the records we have in Jewish writings referring to him, a very important man. He, he's a man who was looked up to for his steadfast commitment to both God and his word. The other thing about Gamaliel, as we read through Acts, especially we get to Acts chapter 22, verse, 30, verse 3, we find out that the Apostle Paul studied under Gamaliel. So the very man giving the speech is, is like Paul's teacher. Just think about it. Even though we have zero evidence that Gamaliel ever came to faith in Jesus Christ. In God's sovereign providence, he not only protected the 12 apostles from death, he unknowingly prepared the future apostle Paul for gospel ministry. That's the man we have in this text. It's just kind of good to get a big picture view of who this man actually is. Number two. The second thing I want you to see is even though Gamaliel's proposal reveals a very high view of God's sovereignty and ultimately saves the 12 from the Sanhedrin, his proposal falls short as true spiritual advice. His proposal actually falls short. If we think in broad historical strokes, is he accurate? The answer is yes. But the problem is, is we can't measure God's work in one or two years. We can't measure God's one or work in even one or two decades in many cases. Many times we, we need to be able to look back through, through multiple decades, if not centuries, to, to see how God is actively at work in the moment. We can't just wait a year or two. Or a month or two. So yes, we can say in broad terms it is an accurate principle because today there are over two billion Christians on the face of the planet on every corner of the globe. But when it comes down to it, waiting to see how things are going to turn out is not a proper, nor is it a spiritual response to difficult situations. I mean, I mean, just think about it. Like, when was the last time that really worked out for you? Just wait and see. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But what does he not do? What does Gamaliel not do? He doesn't encourage the Sanhedrin to consider the apostles' claims that God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus. He doesn't call them to examine the countless miracles that have accompanied their teaching. They can't refute them. But he doesn't bring them up. He doesn't take them to God's word. He opts for a pragmatic solution that is loosely based on general principles instead of searching the scriptures to see if their message was true. And if that rings a bell, it should, because that's Acts 17.11, a reference to the Bereans. 
who searched the scriptures daily to see if what the apostle said was true. He doesn't do that. The third thing we see about Gamaliel's intervention is that he might have saved the 12 from sudden death, but he did not protect them from the Sanhedrin's wrath nor did he protect them from experiencing their first taste of real suffering and persecution for the sake of Christ. There's so much in this passage, it's easy to miss a very important verse. Verse 40. When they called in the apostles, they didn't just charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go, did they? That was last time. They beat them. They beat them. As Craig Keener notes in his commentary on Acts, many many scholars believe that the beating in verse 40 was the traditional Jewish punishment of 39 lashes. So just, just capture that for a minute. 39 lashes. If we read through the the rabbinic sources, they tell us this. This is how it was carried out. The person would be tied to a post or lie on the ground and they would receive one-third of the blows on the front of their body and two-thirds on their back. Thus, thus the person inflicting the punishment would strike a strap of calf leather with interwoven thongs against the offender's back 26 times and their chest 13 times. That, that's the beating. We're, we're talking about a whip with multiple prongs coming off it and, and we're not totally clear if this was just not, if it was braided or if it was actually braided with, with, with pottery and shards and iron in it to, to help it do even greater damage. But even apart from that, even, even apart from having the extra additions History tells us that this, this, is, this is a brutal punishment. This, this is not a simple slap on the wrist. According to historical records, records this punishment left, left countless people close to death, if not dead. Just the punishment. I mean, they could have died right on the spot or died a couple days later for, from blood loss. See, see, in modern terms, we would say that they were beaten to within an inch of their life for their obedience to Christ. But it's in this very moment of of uncontrollable blood loss, this moment of filleted strips of hanging flesh, mind-numbing pain, that we see the power of God and in fact, the accuracy of Gamaliel's proposal in the apostles' response. Verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing. Rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. These two verses never cease to amaze me. The apostles, once again, they don't respond with with angry, defiant determinism. You you know, like like, like a delinquent high schooler being drugged through the halls to the principal's office. You know, like that. Or, or if you can remember, like, like Saddam Hussein's final walk to the gallows, defiant determinism. Nor, nor did they, they respond to this beating with, with, with disillusioned self-pity. They didn't respond to a self-pity. They're, they're not angry at God. God, why didn't you stand up for us? We're doing what you told us to do. What's up, God? I mean, aren't you supposed to protect me if I obey you? Isn't that how things are supposed to work? No, they respond to their brutal flogging with joy. That don't make sense if you're not a Christian. That doesn't make sense if you're not a Christian. In, in fact, in the Greek, the present participle full of joy emphasizes the truth that this joy well, wasn't just kind of like this, this brief emotional reaction in the presence of the persecutors. Like they're like, going, yeah, yeah, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. No. No, it's indicating a continuous, overflowing sense of paradoxical gladness. And in this, what do we see? We see the power of God on display in their lives. I mean, you might not believe it right now, but I I fractured my tibia about two weeks ago. Got it checked a couple days ago to find out it was. It hurt. Nothing like this. And I can tell you in the moment of the pain when it happened, there was not joy and gladness. (laughs) There was not much rejoicing. I mean, it's just, we we, we need to not go past these things too quickly. This is the power of God on display. And, and the kind of joy we're talking about here is not the delight of, of a masochist who finds a twisted sense of pleasure in their pain. That is, that is not a biblical view of rejoicing. No, their joy is anchored in the spirit-empowered boldness, perseverance, and tenacious faithfulness that actually led to their pain. Why did they rejoice? Because they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor and shame for the name of Jesus Christ. 
And in what way were they, were they worthy? They didn't cower in the face of their threats. If they would have cowered, there would have been any number of ways for them to escape this beating. They would have toned down their message. They would have tried to pivot. But they were worthy for one reason. They stood for Christ as they had been called to. See, they understood that their beating was directly, inextricably linked to their obedience to Jesus Christ. You you can have no greater sense of comfort and joy in life as a Christian in anything you experience than when you can draw an absolute straight line between your obedience and the pain it might lead to. And in all this, Luke tells us, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, if you get your Bible open, look, where did they continue to do? They did not cease doing it where? From their hospital beds? No. From the temple and from house. They, they went back to the temple again. Their beating did not destroy their obedience. They didn't pull back. They didn't retreat to friendlier towns. They didn't restrict their ministry to house to house. They boldly returned to the temple in their physical weakness and pain, bloody, bruised, and bandaged to continue proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In light of this, I I think Luke's main point in this passage is this, that opposition and persecution cannot stop the advance of the gospel because, we we need to clarify the reason why, because they unwittingly reveal the active power of Jesus in the persevering faithfulness of his blood-bought people. Jesus is at work Persecution reveals a power and and a commitment that is not evident when life is going okay. Right? The power of God is not obviously displayed in our lives for the world to see when life is all hunky-dory. It's on display when God's people are going through the darkest times especially persecution. And their commitment to Jesus Christ is still unwavering. So in this, let me be clear. The promise that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel is not a promise that either evangelism or the Christian life is easy. When we say nothing can stop the gospel, we don't mean it's easy to live as a Christian. 
We don't mean it's easy. No, no, it's a reminder that even though we're responsible to proclaim the gospel and live a life that is worthy of the gospel, God is responsible for its effectiveness. Because he is the one who empowers its advance in and through us as we walk in obedience. God is the active power, not our willpower. Whether it be perseverance or it be gospel fruitfulness, God is the one who makes it happen. And that truth should give every single one of us hope. We can think in our minds of countless ways we might be tempted to abandon Jesus Christ. But by the power of the Spirit, He grants boldness that makes no sense to anyone around us. So how how can the truths of this passage help us today? For the sake of time, I'm just going to highlight one application. We could go to any number. And it's this. When Christians face opposition, social ostracism, we might, we might use the term shame, or, or outright persecution for their steadfast commitment to Jesus Christ. When we face any of these things for our commitment to Jesus Christ, it's not a sign, number one, that God has lost control, and it's not a sign, number two, that Satan is somehow winning. Frustrates me. Not that I am on social media much, but when I hear people or see people writing stuff like, Satan is winning. You need to recheck your theology. No, it's not a sign that that God has lost control. It's not a sign that Satan is winning. When we face opposition, direct opposition for those kinds of things, what is it giving evidence to in our life? It's giving evidence or giving an indication that Jesus is in fact our greatest treasure. If Jesus is not your greatest treasure, you will be more than happy to throw your Christian faith overboard when hard times come. You'll be more than willing to adjust it, to fit in the ways of the world, to avoid anything that you don't want to endure. Believe any lie, adjust any truth. But if you are unwilling to bend the truth and stand for Christ, even though it's going to cost, what is it ultimately saying? Jesus is my greatest treasure. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in searching of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Christianity is not something we just add into an already busy schedule. It's not like looking at your family schedule in the fall or in the spring, or because I'll get the sports wrong. But 
You're not, you're not there as a family going, oh, can we add soccer in and dance at the same time? Is it going to work? No. No, Jesus demands all. See, what I want you to see in this, as we cycle back to the, this, this, the reality, and, and it's, it's ever-increasing in our culture, that, is, that there's a reality that public shame and persecution, we need to realize they're designed to accomplish an end. Shame and persecution are designed to, to threaten and attack our earthly treasures. That's what they're designed to do. What do they threaten? They threaten our positions of influence. They threaten our social respect. They threaten our workplace opportunities. They threaten our financial security. They threaten our physical safety. And when we actually see this, we can see that they're ultimately directed. That is, persecution and shame in our culture are directed towards one of two primary goals. Number one, to compel us to abandon Christ or two, to punish us for our commitment to Christ. That's what they're designed to do. Turn away. If you're not going to turn away, then we're going to pour out our wrath on you in any way that we possibly can. And Christians, we are living in a dark and confusing time in this day and age that we live in. Christianity isn't getting more popular, is it? I mean, I'm so thrilled that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Yet what is it stirred up? What will it stir up in the future? We'll see. I have now doubt that they're going to try to find a legislative way to, to, to stop it. We're not more popular. I mean, on the one hand, let's be honest. Look at the American church broadly. In broad terms, the American church is in many ways a mess. Not every church. I mean, the American church has been rocked by scandalous sin at the highest levels. And in many ways, the gospel that's preached in many American churches has been perverted by degenerate preachers into self-serving pursuits of health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, these are travesty of the highest order, and they deserve rightful commendation, condemnation. But they actually, they actually feed the world's hatred on the negative sense. And on the other hand, the church is is facing increasing conflict and condemnation for our steadfast commitment to the truth and to the gospel, to the authority of God's word. I mean, let's just grab one area. Where, Where do we often get some of our greatest condemnation? Specifically, our refusal to worship the modern idol of wanton, untethered sexuality or to sanction its bloody sacrament of abortion. That puts us in conflict with the world. And as a result, Christian, we are increasingly called haters and oppressors and abusers. But why? 
Simple reason is we are trying, we, we, we belong to Jesus and we are trying to live a life that magnifies his worth. If, if that is the reason, then it is a good reason. <clears throat> Let it not be for the former, for failures, for sin, but that we are people. <clears throat> who will obey God rather than men. In closing, Jesus said this in John 15, starting verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why does it happen? When it comes... When is ostracism and shame or even persecution, if it goes that far, why does it come? It, beca- it comes because of his name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Let's close in a word of prayer.